Welcome to Body Talk 2.0. Today we're going to talk about perineal lacerations and repair. So I wanted to choose a surgical component to just um, something you'll see on the labor floor. So perineal trauma is a common and expected complication that occurs with vaginal birth. It occurs in anywhere from around like 50 to 80% of women at the time of their delivery, and it involves injury to the tissues around the vagina and the rectum. So Ned, what are the two ways in which we see perineal trauma occurring? Yep. So perineal trauma can occur spontaneously during childbirth, or it can be atrogenic, or for those like me who need to simplify that, aka that means surgically, also known as an episiotomy. And an episiotomy is a surgical enlargement of the posterior aspect of the vagina by incising the vagina in the second stage of labor, or when the cervix is fully dilated and the mother starts pushing. And Allie, can you go over some of the risk factors now? There are certain risk factors that are going to increase chances of this happening for women. So the first one is nulliparity. So this just means that a woman has not had a child before. And this makes sense as to why the frequency and severity of perineal trauma decreases with each subsequent birth. Operative vaginal deliveries are also risk factors. So this means you use a device for the delivery, depending on who you're working with at the time, but it'll either be forceps or a vacuum to help with the delivery. Increased fetal weight, so if you imagine a bigger baby, obviously it would make sense that there could be more difficulty for the baby to come out. And then another risk factor is a midline episiotomy. So Ned just gave us a basic overview of what an episiotomy is. But the midline episiotomy, it's actually the most commonly performed uh, type of episiotomy in the U.S., but it is associated with higher frequency of perineal lacerations. So when I read this, I first thought, you know, why, why would this be the chosen approach then if it does have this higher tendency for perineal lacerations at the time of birth? And it's because the other option, which is known as a medial lateral episiotomy, is really difficult to repair. It's associated with increased postpartum pain as well as blood loss. So mm-hmm. that that is why a midline episiotomy, although increases the chance for um, perineal trauma, is the chosen Um, the chosen method. And then ACOG, so the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, recommends just in general restricted episiotomy use. And then another risk factor just to end is going to be Asian race. Now moving into the anatomy. So perineal lacerations are classified based on the extent of the anatomical structures involved. So we're going to walk you through all of the relevant anatomy in this area. So the perineum in general, so it's a diamond-shaped area between the external genitalia, also referred to as the vulva, and the anus. So there's boundaries or borders that you can define. So there's two different ways to define these. There's an anatomical way, which is more bony structures, but we're going to use the surface anatomy boundaries just because that's, that's what you're visualizing at the time of these procedures. So this is visualized best when the lower limbs are abducted. So if you can just picture a woman in the position in which she's giving birth, that's the extent that we're talking about these borders. So anteriorly in this perineum diamond-shaped area, you have the mons pubis. Laterally on both sides, you have the medial surface of the thighs. And then posteriorly is the superior end of the intergluteal cleft. So that's the portion that's almost in contact with the bed, if you can visualize the patient. So now if you draw a transverse line, so a horizontal line connecting the lateral portions of this triangle, so anatomically it's actually those ischial tuberosities um, or medial thighs. So this diamond divides two triangles that each contain different structures. Um, So there's an anterior urogenital triangle and a posterior anal triangle. 
And it's important to distinguish these two triangles because they contain different structures. So the anterior urogenital triangle, this gets pretty complex. There's different fascia layers and pouches that you can kind of take a look at at an image. But the structures that I want you to remember in this triangle, it's going to be that external genitalia and the urethra. So then moving to the posterior anal triangle, you have the opening of the anus, the external anal sphincter, which we'll talk about a bit later, and the ischioanal fossa. So this is going to be those lateral spaces on either side of the anus. So that's the anatomy that we're taking a look at um, during labor, essentially. And then, Ned, do you want to get into a bit of the blood supply and the innervation? Yep. Uh, I will say that the perineum beforehand uh, is, I think, one of the most difficult areas to kind of visualize with all the layers and stuff. So uh, like Ali said, I would definitely look at a picture. Um, but blood supply. So blood supply uh, to the uh, perineum. So it's the internal pudendal artery, which is a branch of the anterior division of the internal iliac. So internal pudendal artery. And then innervation is uh, the pudendal nerve. This is S2, S4 nerve roots from the sacral plexus. Uh, sensory of this nerve is to the external genitalia and skin around the anus, the anal canal, and the perineum. And then it also has motor function as well to the muscles of the perineum and the pelvic floor, external urethral sphincter, and external anal sphincter. Therefore, the pudendal nerve provides the voluntary and somatic control of fecal and urinary incontinence. All right, or continence, excuse me, not incontinence. Sure, if they get messed up, then you have <laughs> then incontinence. Then you have incontinence, you exactly. Uh, so uh, just remember the internal anal and urethral sphincters are comprised of smooth muscle and are under autonomic nervous system control. So usually if there's the word external, that's going to be a somatic nerve. And in this case, that's the pudendal. If it's internal, then it's autonomic nervous system control, just when we're talking about this type of stuff. And then uh, Allie really likes the pudendal nerve. So can you tell us why? I do love the pudendal nerve, which is, I guess, a nerdy anatomy thing that I enjoy, but I just think it has one of the most interesting kind of courses that it takes as it gets to where it needs to go. So it leaves the pelvis in a unique way, and it requires an understanding of some of the important anatomical landmarks that you find on the bony pelvis itself, which is why I think I enjoy it so much. So if you can picture the bony pelvis, if you remember back to when you went through anatomy, you'll have the greater and lesser sciatic notch on the bony pelvis itself. And then there's certain ligaments that are going to attach to the pelvis that end up making foramen that we care about. So there's a sacrotuberous ligament, so it's going to go from the sacrum to the ischial tuberosity, and the sacrospinous ligament, which goes from the sacrum to the ischial spine. And these are going to form the greater and lesser sciatic foramen. So the pudendal nerve, it leaves the pelvis through the greater sciatic foramen, and then it's going to jump right back through the lesser sciatic foramen. And it does so by crossing over the top of the sacrospinous ligament to kind of get right back into that lesser sciatic foramen. I always just think, I don't know why, I loved that dissection <laughs> in, in lab, and for some reason I just think that's such a cute little course of the pudendal nerve. Yeah, and then if I remember, like if you want to do a pudendal nerve block, there's like something that, you know, you're going to identify uh, based off of the anatomy that you're just saying. And um, uh, wh what was it? Is it the... Uh... Exactly. The ischial spine yeah, is what, what you thought. go for for the pudendal nerve block. And that's because as that nerve is kind of going over the sacrospinous ligament or wrapping around it, it does so right where um, that ligament is inserting onto the ischial spine. So that's mm -hmm. why all the anatomy is in that area. So there's also this concept of the pudendal canal, which is also called alox canal. 
So after the pudendal nerve passes beneath um, that sacral, or not beneath, but kind of wraps around that sacrospinous ligament, the f- there's a fascia associated with the obturator internus muscle, which is going to contain the pudendal artery, the vein, and the nerve. So at this area, it's now where you have that complete neurovascular bundle. So that's why this alox canal is, is so important. So the obturator internus muscle, just to talk a little bit about that, so if you can refresh your memory. So it's going to come off of the bony pelvis at like the pubis and the ischium um, at the level of the obturator foramen. It travels through that lesser sciatic foramen and attaches to the greater trochanter of the femur. Again, just because I love pudendal things in this, this area, but if you remember back again to first year anatomy, dissection of the gluteal region, there was this white tendon that you saw. It was always shiny, and it was visualized between those superior and inferior gemelli muscles. I always looked like a little Oreo is what I would call it when I teach it to the first years now. Um, the white part, kind of like the filling, and then the gemelli superior and inferior muscles are kind of that cookie part. So that's the Oreo. We thought this would be a good time to mention pelvic support, and this can be described using Delancey's levels of vaginal support. So this is going to describe the vaginal connective tissue support system of the pelvis, which is going to help explain some different clinical scenarios you may see when there's dysfunction to these different levels. So there's going to be a level one, a level two, and a level three. So level one involves some ligaments that we've talked about in previous episodes. So the cardinal and the uterosacral ligaments are responsible for suspending the vaginal apex or that uppermost portion. This also you want to be aware of is going to be the most important level and it's responsible for a significant portion of the vaginal support. So that's why it's considered the most important. So Ned, what do we see if we have dysfunction to this level? Yeah, dysfunction at level one can lead to vaginal prolapse. Level two, so this is going to support the middle vagina. Um, these names are a little tricky. Arcus tendineus fascia pelvis and the fascia overlying the levator ani muscles, which we'll talk about in a bit. But again, just know that level two is responsible for supporting the middle vagina. And Ned, what happens with dysfunction at level two? Yep, dysfunction can lead to a cystocele, which is the bladder kind of pushing on the vagina, or a rectocele, which is the rectum pushing on the vagina. And then level three is going to be this perineal body, which we're going to touch on, and the urogenital diaphragm, which is responsible for the support of the lower vagina. And Ned, what can we see here with dysfunction? Yeah, dysfunction at level three can lead to a urethroceal. So we wanted to talk about this pelvic support because it's a nice transition with level three involving the perineal body to talk about what is the perineal body. So Ned, can you give us just kind of a quick overview of what goes on there? Yeah, so the perineal body is a uh, dense connective tissue at the point of the perineum. It's located at the junction of the urogenital and anal triangles that Ali mentioned earlier and is a point of attachment for a lot of the muscles there, such as the bulbospongiosis muscle, the superficial and deep transverse perineal muscle, the external anal sphincter fibers, which, which we mentioned before is voluntary control via branches of the pudendal nerve and is a skeletal muscle, the anterior portion of the levator ani, and this consists of three muscles that span the pelvic floor. First one being the puborectalis muscle, the pubococcygeus muscle next, and then the lastly, the iliococcygeus muscle. So now that we went over the anatomy involved in this area, we can start to understand the classification that you see with perineal lacerations. 
So there's four degrees that you see with a perineal laceration. So the first degree is going to be a laceration that involves just the perineal skin going through the vaginal mucosa. Mm -hmm. Second degree is going to be a perineal laceration that is going to extend into the perineal body, which Ned just defined for us. Mm -hmm. Third degree, this one gets broken down um, a little bit more in depth, but in general, it's a perineal laceration that's going to involve the external anal sphincter. So when I said it gets broken down further, there's a 3A, a 3B, and a 3C, which depends on how much of that external anal sphincter is going to be involved. So 3A, you'll see less than 50% of anal sphincter involvement. 3B will be greater than 50%. Whereas 3C, um, obviously, so it's going to be the worst one for the third degree, but it's going to be the external sphincter completely, as well as the internal sphincter is going to be involved. And then fourth degree, so the last degree, which again is the most significant. So this is going to be a perineal laceration that contains everything we just discussed, as well as extending through some of the rectal mucosa. Now that we touched on the anatomy itself and the classification of the perineal lacerations, we want to touch just briefly on the repair. So there's this idea of oasis. So that's the obstetrical anal sphincter injury which involves severe perineal lacerations that involve the anal sphincter, so those third and fourth degree tears. So the goal of repair is obviously you want to restore the original anatomy, and the approach that you use is going to depend on which degree of laceration the patient has. So there is limited evidence to support the first and second degree laceration repairs. Um, So you're going to have clinical judgment and provider preference that comes into play. But in general, first degree lacerations, so if it's hemostatic or not bleeding and the anatomy is relatively normal and intact, you can use suture or adhesive glue depending on the surgeon's discretion. Second degree lacerations, you're going to want to use a running or a continuous suture because this is associated with decreased postpartum pain. And then third and fourth degree lacerations, so those more significant ones with sphincter involvement, are going to require a stepwise approach. So for example, we'll talk about this in context of a fourth degree laceration. You're going to want to first reapproximate the rectal mucosa that's involved. And then second, you're going to reapproximate or bring the tissue back together, the anal sphincter. Um, And then you close the rest of this exactly how you would a second degree tear. So with that running or continuous suture. And then Ned, so once this repair happens, what are some complications that we worry about with patients that require this? So with any type of surgical procedure, we're obviously uh, concerned with complications of bleeding and infection. And then specifically with this, uh, uh, with this, you for long term, you could have pain, uh, urinary or anal incontinence, especially when it's involving those third and fourth degree lacerations that involve the uh, anal uh, sphincter. Uh, and then uh, delayed return to sexual intercourse as a result of dyspareunia. I can never say this word. Dyspareunia. It just means painless sexual intercourse, but it's a tough one to say. Thank you. I needed rescuing there. (laughs) Um, And then uh, another thing to be aware of is a rectovaginal fistula, which is a connection between uh, the rectum and the vagina. Um, And this can happen particularly when uh, there's a unrecognized uh, or a poorly repaired uh, laceration. All right, now we're gonna round out with the surgical snippets. So the surface boundaries of the perineum. So there'll be the mons pubis anteriorly, the medial thighs laterally, and the superior end of the intergluteal cleft inferiorly to form a diamond. And what is the blood supply to the perineum? The internal pudendal artery, a branch of the internal iliac artery. And what is the innervation to the perineum? The pudendal nerve. 
What's another name for the pudendal canal? Alox canal. In Delancey's level of vaginal support, what is considered the most important level? That'll be level one, which involves the cardinal and uteral sacral ligaments at the apex of the vagina. And which degrees of perineal lacerations involve the anal sphincters? So 3A and 3B involve the external anal sphincter, 3C involves the external and internal anal sphincters, and the fourth degree involves both sphincters as well as the rectal mucosa. Thanks for listening. Bye.